0: you want to take your Bibles, if you're not already there, and go to Hebrews, my name is Tim. Hebrews has a lot to say about Jesus, and this morning we are going to talk a lot about Jesus because for us, Jesus is really the point. And you don't have to be a follower of Jesus to realize that there is probably no more influential person who has ever lived on the earth. He is like front page material. Um, we have been talking about him, even though he lived 2,000 years ago, discussing who he is. Was he a good, just a good person, just a good teacher, a prophet? Or was he, as we as Christians believe, was he God and the way to God, that God can't be known apart from Jesus? As a follower of Jesus, that's what we believe believe, and this is big. And Jesus is not simple. The Bible presents Jesus as God. The Bible presents Jesus as human. You have to believe in, in him as both God and human in order to have the real Jesus. And sometimes in our mind, we can default to think mostly one way, but he is the ultimate both and. How can that be? Can something be of completely different natures, almost like completely opposites, and be simultaneously true at the same time? The knee-bent reaction would be, obviously, no, you can't be fully wet and fully dry at the same time. You can't be good and evil at the same time. And yet, there are these both-and situations. There's a group called Three-Minute theology, and they have done a real good job of giving an example of the particle and wave. In physics, a particle is a specific object with a specific mass in, in location in space. So think of a hockey puck, a, a dust particle, an atom. That's a particle. A wave is an oscillation of energy through space. So think of a sun, sunlight. Think of um, radio waves. Think of microwaves. In traditional physics, these two things would be completely um, considered mutually exclusive, either or. But as scientists began to go deeper and deeper and, and study smaller and smaller things, what did they discover? Matter exhibits properties as a particle. It exhibits properties as a wave. They exist simultaneously together, both and, not either or. Case in point is the electron. And in 1906, a man by the name of Joseph James Thompson won the Nobel Physics Prize for introducing the electron as a subatomic particle of mass, negatively charged, very impressive, won a Nobel Prize for it. Ironically, 31 years later, his son, George, won a Nobel Prize for presenting the electron as a wave. It exists as both and and became known as the wave-particle duality. The electron has both and properties at the same time. And so it is with Jesus. The Bible presents, us, presents him to us as fully God and fully human. Saying Jesus is God does not fully explain him. Saying Jesus is a man does not fully explain him. He exists as the God-man. It's called the hypostatic union hypostatic union. Take that to your high school class on Monday. Tell your friends, what did you talk about on the weekend? We talked about the hypostatic union. Yeah, baby. It's a Greek word. It comes from hypostasis, which means essence. And it's speaking of the fact that there were two natures that existed in one essence, one person, the person of Jesus Christ, without contradiction. It's amazing mystery, but it's not only magnificent, it is necessary For our relationship with God through Jesus Christ, so as we look at Hebrews, and we we see the context first of all, the Jews had committed their life to Jesus Christ. They'd heard the message, the gospel, the good news about Jesus, and so they'd put their faith and trust in Him. But because of that decision, it's been getting difficult. The world that they lived in did not approve of their choice. And so some of them have their property property confiscated, Uh, their safety was in jeopardy, their comfort. You know, when you lose your, your property or when your livelihood is threatened, when people say, you know what, we're not gonna do business with you because you're a follower of Jesus. We're gonna ostracize you because you're a follower of Jesus. When you live in that kind of environment, you really question, is my faith real? Is it worth it? When I'm going to lose these things, is it worth it? And they're tempted to to cast off this new way that they've started living and to go back to their former way of living, their former devotion. Ever been there? The writer to the Hebrews is convinced that that would be a colossal mistake. But instead of berating them... At first what he does is he wants to elevate before them the person of Jesus that they already have a a relationship with. So behold, the writer is saying, Jesus, your God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. It says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. In his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer wrote, God is not the sort of person that we are. His wisdom, his aims, his scale of values, his mode of procedure differ so vastly from our own that we cannot possibly guess our way to them by intuition or infer them by analogy from our notion of ideal manhood. We cannot know him unless he speaks and tells us Himself And of course, the grace that we read about in the Bible is that God has spoken. He spoke in the past to his people by his prophets who, who revealed to God's people what God was thinking and how they should live. But more importantly, the, the writer to the Hebrews says, is, he has spoken in these last days to us by his son, Jesus. Jesus, we know, lived among us. He tabernacled among us. He explained God to us, John tells us. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus, and we see God most clearly there. How clearly? Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In the Old Testament, God, you know, repeatedly says, I will not share my glory with another I am the Lord, Isaiah 42, verse 8. That is my name. My glory I will give to no other. And yet Jesus, it says here, is the radiance of God's glory. How could he be? And the exact representation of God. That could never be said of a human. It could only be said of one who is God, as God is God. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So... I I tried this on the weekend. I've got two objects in my hand, and I'm just going to speak to them, and and I'm going to ask one just to stay in position, and I'm going to ask the other one to rotate around it, okay? So you stay. You you rotate around. Not so good. I'm going to try it again, okay? I'm just going to speak. I'm going to speak to these objects, and I'm going to tell this one to stay, and I want this one to rotate around, okay? You stay. You rotate around. Man just like they did yesterday. What's wrong with those things? Scripture says Jesus upholds his creation by the word of his power. We exist on an earth right now that is rotating on its axis and revolving around the sun at a precise angle, at a precise degree so that we don't don't burn up, we don't freeze. There's there's complicated volumes of mass and and the moon and gravity and all these things working together so that we have air that we can breathe so that the tides operate the way that they do. He holds all things together by the word of his power. And and that word uphold is the word sustain. He sustains it. And and it's written in in a Greek tense that's present, active. In other words, it's because of Jesus' word right now, we exist, we live. We're alive. Who could do that? Gravity, planets, galaxies, Jesus, creator, sustainer. God. Only God could do that. There's more that he goes on to say after making purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the the majesty on high. The writer is going to talk more about how Jesus is superior to their honored holy priests. He'll touch on that more. But right now he wants to emphasize how Jesus is more superior to the angels See that the Jewish people a lot of them had this rage with angels this they were the thing they had developed a whole hierarchy of angels and from around the 2nd century before Christ into Jesus day they had added teachings to the old testament some of the biblical stories they attribute to angels what, what were attributed in the old testament to god we see this in the giving of the law to and through Moses In Deuteronomy, it hints that there were angels present, but when Stephen in Acts chapter 7 talks to the the leaders, he says, you received the law as coming through angels, even though you didn't obey it. You received it as coming through angels. And in later Judaism, you see, they had their angel swag too. They they have embroidery with angels shown on it in the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Angels were the rage in their thought when God revealed himself to Moses and the people. He used angels and the writer to the Hebrews does not want them to think that Jesus is just another revelation through an angel. He's so much bigger than that. Verse 4, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. What is that name? For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? He's given the title of son. To be a son is to be of the same as your father. That is why Jesus they have trusted in is the exact representation of God. Verse 6, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. A couple of weeks ago in our last message on the kingdom series at the, the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, John, who's been given all these visions in, in the book of Revelation, uh, he, he's so like taken back by it. He wants to fall at the angel's feet who's shown him these visions. And, and so he, he wants to fall at the angel's feet and worship the angel. And the angel says, no, no, don't do that. Worship God. And yet we read here in Hebrews chapter 1 that God commands the angels to worship Jesus. Of the angels, he says in verse 7, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God. Who is he speaking about? In case we didn't get all the, the, the message of what he said so far, what does God call Jesus. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Down to verse 10. And you, O Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Those verses, Hebrews 1, verses 10 to 12, are a direct quote out of Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27, where it's speaking clearly of the one true God in the Old Testament, Yahweh, and now applies it directly to Jesus. This is mind-boggling. Like, How could this be? How, How could you remain monotheistic, believing in just one God, and yet believing that the Father is God and Jesus is God? And as we talked about last week, the early church had to wrestle with that And as they wrestled with that, there was a few erroneous views that came to the surface. There was a guy named Sibelius who proposed that um, the Father was the same as the Son, who was the same as the Holy Spirit, that God just revealed himself in different modes at different times. So it's called Sibelianism or modalism. And that, that didn't hold weight with people. It was quickly sort of, it died a quick death. But there was another erroneous view proposed by a man named Arius who, who proposed that the father was greater than Jesus. And, and that did get some traction. And so the church had to come together eventually in, in a council at Nicaea in 8325. And they, they hammered out a creed that said that the father and the son were of the same essence. One was not greater than the other. And eventually a Trinitarian statement came that really says that God is one in essence or nature, three in person. And having settled that, later the church had to work out, now Now, what do we do with Jesus, who is both God and man? Like how do we understand him in that way? As Hebrews chapter 2 beginning at verse 6 now emphasizes, Jesus is not only God, Jesus is man. Verse 6, it has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. This is is a quote from Psalm chapter 8 where it speaks about mankind and how God has honored mankind. And the writer in Hebrews applies this directly to Jesus and speaks about his, his glorification having died and risen. How he's crowned with glory and all honor also in that. And one day everything is going to be put in subjection under his feet, including death. And in case we don't know who he's talking about in verse 9, he says, But we see him who for a little while, for a little while, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Jesus as God took on humanity. He became something he was not. This is why we remember Christmas. That this was God's initiative where Jesus became human on a mission to die for us. We skip down to verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. Flesh and blood, people, they die. But but God does not die. God cannot die. He's eternal, eternally existent. So Jesus, wanting to step into our humanity, takes on humanity to the fullness so that he will die. as flesh and blood. He will do that. Rather, he embraces his humanity and through his death, he takes away Satan's biggest weapon, death. And he defeats it. And he who has the power of death, that is the devil. Remember, we saw in chapter one that he he, he accomplished the purification for sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty. See, a priest every year would, would make this sacrifice to God, blood would be shed. And and priests would stand in their work. Their work was never done because people never stopped sinning. And so their work was never done. And they had to offer a sacrifice, not just for the sins of the people they were representing, because that's what a priest does, but they had to offer a sacrifice for their own sin. Jesus Christ offers himself as a sacrifice. Only he is pure. He's a different kind of human being. He has no sin, but he voluntarily offers up himself without sin. And when he has done it, he is able to sit down because it's accomplished. It is finished. It's done. It's taken care of. No need to stand and work anymore Through death, he destroyed sin and Satan and frees us who might fear death otherwise, who might fear the wrath of God, but no longer need to. Jesus dying shows us how completely he identified with us. Verse 17, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So we have a Jesus who is fully God. And we have a Jesus who is presented to us as fully man in every way. How does that work? How how does that happen? How is that possible? And so the early church fathers had to work this out too. And they help us today. Gregory was one. He says, what has not been assumed cannot be fully redeemed. In other words, Jesus had to assume all our humanity so that he could redeem all our humanity. Athanasius said, he became like us so that we might become like him. And again, the Christian leaders got together in in around the year 451 AD at Chalcedon, which is today in Turkey, and and they hammered out a creed. and, And to summarize that creed in five points, Jesus had two natures. Secondly, Jesus is fully God and fully man. He's not half God, half man. He is fully man, fully God. Thirdly, those two natures are not um, blended together like to to make a third nature. They remain distinct from one another. Fourthly, the two natures exist in one person. Jesus is not multiple persons. He is one person. Fifthly, what is true of one nature is true of the person of Christ. Christ. So if Jesus was tired in his humanity, we can say that Jesus in his person was tired. If Jesus in his humanity didn't know something, didn't know when the hour was, was, was coming, that he would return, then, then if that was his, true of him in his humanity, then we can say that was true of the person of Jesus. It's like the wave and particle duality, coexisting together without contradiction, distinct in the one person we know is Jesus Christ. Verse 17 again, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, that is to make satisfaction for the wrath that was due people because of their sins verse 18 for because he himself has suffered when tempted he is able to help those who are being tempted jesus taking on humanity dying for our sins uh, accomplished in god the 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 need for satisfaction of those sins. We understand when a wrong is done, something has to happen in order to make that wrong right. Jesus has accomplished that. It's absolutely amazing. That's one of the results from his becoming like us. But there's something else that the writer wants to point out to us. In Jesus becoming human, he really gets us. He really understands us. He understands our pain. He understands our frustration. He understands the things that we go through because he has tasted the best and the worst of human experience. And because of that, the writer says, he can be a merciful and faithful priest, our representative, our intermediary before God. Most of us are, are still uh, probably very much aware of the accident that happened in Saskatchewan with the ho- hockey team, Humboldt Broncos. And as we hear that story, we want to empathize. We, you know, we, our hearts are touched and we, and we, we want to extend some, somehow a, a love, a sympathy. But it's difficult if you haven't gone through a loss like that. In 1988, um, a high school basketball team was on a bus journey from Dawson Creek to Lillooet. It was going to be the first single-A BC High School Boys Championship. The team never got there. The bus crashed outside of Prince George, killing their coach, Ron Pettigrew, and five players. My friend was living in Dawson Creek at the time, And tells his story how he got a knock at the door from the RCMP. And as he opened the door and began to talk with them, they broke to him the news that his son was one of the five. That he had been killed in the crash. Think about the shock, the waves of emotion, the grief, the agony who would you want to, to comfort you if you were one of those humble parents? Who would you want to comfort you to walk through you know, with the steps of grief, that journey that they're going to have to go through? Wouldn't you want someone who's been there, who's experienced it, who's walked a- ahead of you in it? So it is with Jesus. He's been there. He suffered. He was tempted in every way that you and I could be tempted, and yet without sin. In his humanity, he knows exactly what you feel. He entered our world as an infant. He had to grow just like you do in, in knowledge and understanding and wisdom and relationships and social skills. He had to grow in all those things in his humanity. The Bible tells us that he grew in stature and wisdom. He had to experience relationships that worked and relationships that didn't. He experienced criticism, he experienced rejection. He experienced hatred, and he was tempted with sin, just as you are, but probably way more forcefully. And yet he never succumbed. In the choices that he had, just like you and I have choices in our humanity, he chose God. He chose to obey his Father. Jesus did all of this in his humanity so that he could be your merciful, faithful priest, your representative from God to you and you to God. Have you experienced injustice? Jesus could say, I understand. Have you experienced betrayal? Jesus would say, I understand. Have you experienced loss? Have you experienced physical pain? Jesus would say, I understand. He gets us. Wayne House, in his great book, The Jesus Who Never Lived, exposing false Christs and finding the real Jesus, says the unfathomable nature of the incarnation causes all miracles of the Bible to pale in comparison. In some way, the transcendent, infinite deity joined himself permanently to humanity. The creature took upon himself creatureliness without ceasing to be God. Can you imagine a person who could fully represent you to God? Jesus can Jesus is fully able to represent God to us he is 100% fully God fully divine but he is also 100% fully human and in his perfectness representing to us representing to God us our merciful faithful high priest so as we walk through some of the difficult times in our life as we go through it and as we are tempted to be drawn away, the writer to the Hebrews would remind us that we need to bring our focus back. We need to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That he is worth it. No matter what we're going through, that he is worth it. And that instead of running away from him, we need to realize that this amazing story of grace at the end of Hebrews chapter four, it says, if you get who Jesus is in, in his divinity, in his humanity, that he is both and, the ultimate both and, you don't run from him, you run to him. God is for you. Standing in your place. Faithful, merciful high priest who understands you. Now go to him in time of need and find grace to help. Find mercy. Run to him, people. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus and come to him for everything that you need.